0: would like you to open your Bible to John 17 again. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Our subject is union with Christ. Union with Christ, that also means a relationship with Christ on his terms as he wishes, when he wishes. Union, oneness. In John 17 and verse 20, Jesus is praying, and he said, Neither pray I for these alone, that's his disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. I trust that means you. So this is what he's praying for concerning us here this morning. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And then later, this verse, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Union with Christ, one of the most important messages in the Christian life, if not the most, because it's how you relate to Christ. You can relate to religion, you can relate to your local church you grew up in, you can relate to a denomination, but it is nothing unless you have a personal, sincere, biblical relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a relationship with a story, not a relationship with anything but Christ himself. And that relationship will draw you to him in such a way that there will be union between you and him. This won't happen with everybody, but for those who want it, it will happen. Unity means oneness. It is like the act of making or becoming unified or one. And this is the process that is taking place. is supposed to be taking place as Christians assemble together, hear the word, and then deal with it. It's supposed to have the effect, it's designed to have the effect of bringing us, drawing us to him in a very personal, sincere way. Now, last time we were in Ephesians 4, and I believe this is where this is being revealed to us, how it works. In Ephesians chapter 4, as I've already said, the great need as a body of believers is verse 2 and 3 where it talks about the kind of character that God wants us to have, which contributes to making us, as a body of believers, unified. It is laying down all of my opposition to whatever God says, and my harsh ways are growing up, and all of this becomes submissive to his will. And, well, like he said in verse 2 there, lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit because that's what the Spirit brings in the bond of peace. Then we get down to verse 11, 12, and 13 where we are now. We need verse 13. We can't have verse 16 or 14 unless we have 13. There's a sequence here. If we're going to arrive at being the kind of body that is identified in verse 16 the kind of church that is like verse 14, where we're not tossed by every wind of doctrine, then we have to have verse 13. But we can't have what is said in verse 13 unless we get verse 12. And we really cannot have verse 12 without verse 11. Now, I said that last week. Let me just quickly say this. Verse 11 has to do with essentially the anointing that God sends. He sends it through ministry. You can't learn an anointing. You can't educate yourself to be anointed. It is a gift from God, just as these ministry gifts are of God. Not all ministers are sent. Not all of them are of God. Many of them are trained to do things, and they do those things. They function well. But they do it without the results that the Bible wants to bring. There is a way that seemeth right, but in the end, it's a way of death. Now, we don't like that. I mentioned that Wednesday night. We don't like to think like that. Surely that couldn't be, but it is true. There is a way that man has devised to have religion and have church services and church systems. But if it's not the way God wants it to be, it is a way of death. Because if they speak not in all they're speaking according to this word, it is because they're in darkness. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll all fall into the ditch. Now, that's the reality, the seriousness of what we're all about. We need what God sends. It's an anointed ministry. He doesn't send the kind of people you want. You read in 1 Corinthians 1, he chose the base and the foolish and despised, the people that others wouldn't. Listen to and the only reason you would is because the spirit in you may detect the anointing that is in a speaker There's no glory to a man or a speaker somebody that comes along and enlightens or informs you It's God that does the enlightening It's God that gives the faith. It's God that makes glad the heart not a man God uses men, but it is God who does all the work anointed ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are vital and necessary for the church. If we don't have that special equipping, when the word comes forth, it is just another sermon. It is just another heady or loud word that we heard in our church, and it did nothing to change our lives. It didn't bring any convictions. Our conscience was not stirred, and we left as we came. So it has to be something that God gives us to enlighten us and inform us in a divine way. Now, that brings us to verse 12. And he mentioned these things in verse 12. This is what the anointing from ministry does. He said three things. One, for the perfecting of the saints, or to put us into right relationships with each other. I would call this the divine arrangement. And especially in this body of believers, unlike any that I've ever known, and I've been a lot of places around this country, around this area, I've never known any other body like this one in which we consist of people that came from somewhere. As we showed of hands the other day, very few of you lived here when this all started, very few of you. And myself, and along with most everybody else, we all came here from somewhere else, so we're all different. There's a lot of confusion about The way we're going to do things or see things or believe things or deal with things. We're not on the same page. That's not easy to deal with from the pulpit. But God is gracious and when He anoints it, He can make it work. But what He does is give revelation to us about how we are and what we are, who we are, the reason we are the way we are. We don't use these as excuses for our failures. Well, I grew up in a divorce home in my Mother threw Cyril in my face when I was a baby. Therefore, I went to bed and stuttered. That's not what we use as an excuse for not growing or not changing. But God brings us here, and the Word, when it's from God, it begins to affect your heart. You begin to see yourself. God begins to show you, not speaking to you personally during a message, but a message becomes personal when the Spirit of God is involved. He deals with all of us in different ways and begin to see our arid areas of our personality and the stubbornness in our lives and how we see things and deal with people and the rudeness and the crudeness and the extreme carnality that we have and cope with that just eventually becomes an obstacle not only to yourself but to other people. We begin to see all of this, and we begin, if our hearts are sincere and we were brought here by the Lord and we have sincere hearts, we begin to deal with this. We begin to lay down all of these little things that God must judge if we don't. And in this way, God begins to not only show us who we are, but He shows us who He is and what He wants us to be like. Jesus is the focus. As we begin to desire His way and so forth, we begin to change. We've come to be more in harmony with what he wants. We do begin to get along. We do begin to see another has a fault, but we realize that we're not without faults ourselves, and we have to be humble and kind and forbear one another, and it begins to work. It begins to work. But this is for the perfecting of the saints. You need a word from God that affects your heart like that. Not just another sermon. You go home and say, well, I tasted another sermon. I don't know about that. But one you say, man, God, deal with my heart. That's what we want. For the perfecting of the saints so that we might be of service to each other, that we might learn to serve. The word here in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, the work of ministry, the word there is the same word we get for deacon. It's one who serves. God wants us to come down off of our I'm above perches, down to where we become servants and submissive in the fear of God to each other to each other, for another's well-being. We want to do unto others as we would have others do unto us, and so forth. And then the third thing he mentioned that this does, it makes us edify one another. When I can come to the place that I can see your needs, you're not doing well, you're kind of down in the dumps. When I come to the place where I really want to edify you or encourage you or say a kind word to you, I even find myself wanting to pray that God will give this person a breakthrough, a boost them in this walk so that they don't get discouraged and want to give up. You begin to care about other people. This is the work of God in a person. God does this kind of work because this is what brings harmony and unity in his body and puts his people together. And it all is a result because you are drawn to Christ in this way, and that's the nature of Jesus, to want to love and to want to help and to encourage and edify, and that's what we do. But this is what we see when what we're hearing is anointed, and it affects us. We don't just hear a sermon and go home, but we get stirred when it's God. Now we come to verse 13, because this is where we need to be. We have to be equipped like in verse 12 in order to get verse 13. But here's how it works. This is his goal. Till we all come. Would you agree with me that what is taking place in verse 12 will continue to take place until? There is a time it will no longer have to keep working. It will be over. Till we all come. So we do have a goal. And if somebody asks the question, where are we going? Well, we're going to verse 13 of Ephesians 4. That's where we're going. Where is this church going? Well, this church better be going to verse 13. Now, I don't know where everybody is going. I cannot read everybody's heart. You can come in here and act spiritual every week. I can't tell the difference. God alone can see hearts and knows motivations and thoughts and intentions. God sees all of that. All I know is that this is what I'm called to do. This is a word I'm going to share it with you as best I can understand it. And then you determine whether it's of God or not. And if it is, apply it to your heart and live like that. Because this kind of work has to take place. This has to take place or we're superficial. We're going to die like we lived, Nothing. But we want to have a work done in us. Doesn't it say that God is at work in you? Both to will, this is his will, and to do of his good pleasure. Not ours, his. This is his work. And he says, till we all come. Now, I pray you're going here. I pray you're going there. I pray you're on a journey. Because this is a journey we should be on till we come. I have to measure myself just like you have to measure yourself. We're told to examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith or not. And this is one of the verses that you can use to do all that with. But notice he said the first thing is the unity of the faith in verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, the oneness of the faith, the harmony of the faith. Now, the phrase the faith can be seen as a collection of doctrine. The Christian way of living is called the faith. It's referred to in the Bible as the faith, the Christian faith. This is how Christians ought to live. These are the things that Christians should do, and this is the way a Christian should live. It's all identified by the Lord and set before him, and this collection of all this doctrine in the Bible here of the Christian life is called the faith. Now, it can also be, as you know, that unity of us trusting God. Is it possible? Is it possible that we can ever come to the unity of the faith? Let's look at the two aspects of what this means, the unity of the faith. One, it means oneness in doctrine. Oh, but Brother Hamilton, don't you know that doctrine divides? Well, yes, I know that. It surely does. Doctrine is teaching. Not everybody wants to be taught. Not everybody wants to live on God's terms. Therefore, as the Bible said in the last days, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears who will find a place where what they are taught doesn't interfere with their carnal life. That you can live the way you've always lived and you'll be told it's okay because after all. And you're in the last days, you're going to hear a whole lot of this in the last days, what I just said. A lot of watered down shallowness that's called Christianity, but it isn't. It's a part of our testing, too. And so you get this verse here about doctrine. How does doctrine divide? Because God says this is the way, walk ye in it. If you walk in this way, what happens to you among others who don't walk that way? You become offensive. You become uncomfortable to be around in your own families, Years back, when I was more familiar with these things, that youngster where I was teaching school would get saved and get filled with the Spirit. And their parents got real concerned about them because they were going to church three or four times a week and Bible studies and carrying the Bible to school. And they got concerned about it, and then they wanted to, us to stop it, quit that. We were meeting at the high school library every morning before school. A half hour before school started, those who wanted to come came and filled the library up, just filled it up. I guess 100 kids were there. And we talk about Jesus. And a lot of parents didn't like this because they thought we were proselytizing their kids or making them leave their church and come to our church and that we were misinforming them because some were this and some were this and some were that. Their parents were Methodist, Baptist. And so we were talking about Jesus but not exactly how they would believe who he was. And I was causing confusion and dissension. Who do you think our enemies are going to be? It's non-believers. More than anybody else in these days, it'll be nonbelievers. You'll have trouble with the government, too, because they don't care. People that don't want to change, they don't want you to be right. They don't want what you stand for to be the right way because they would have to yield to it if you were right. I don't want anything to do with these tongues. Where do you get all of that? Well, it's a doctrine. It's a teaching. It's a message in the Bible about a subject. And we don't avoid the subject because we don't want it. We want everything the Bible says. We're leaving nothing out. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I don't care what church you grew up in. There's only one way that is right. There's only one gospel. There's not two ways to interpret it. Nothing that God has ever said is of any private interpretation. You cannot say, well, we don't see it that way, and therefore we see it this way. Another group said, well, we don't think you're right. We see it this way. That's not unity, and that's not harmony. And the community is so glad when these two get together for a show of unity and sponsoring some fun drive in a community. Oh, look at all the churches. They're all together. Hardly. Hardly. Their ancestors shed blood over what they disagree over. And this spiritual unity or a show of unity is not what the Holy Spirit is doing. There is a reason Jesus said in this world, you are going to be hated. You will be hated for what you believe. If you live it. And sometimes your enemies will be those of Matthew 10 in your own house. And you will be marked out for persecution and for opposition. And they will turn against you and gnash their teeth at you. Jesus already said that. You walk with him, he said, as they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. A servant or a disciple is not above his master. If Christ is living inside of me, he said, it's not you they hate. It's me they hate. You're just yielding to me and letting me live my life through you and the same punishment and the same persecution that I got, you're getting now, and you're feeling it, and you're going through it. The hammer's on your head because you're yielding to Christ, but this is your ticket to heaven. This is the way of God's people. This is the way it's going to be. Even in a church, there must be oppositions and heresies so that they who are approved will be known because we do have to prove ourselves. We do have to be faithful to what we have been taught. So take this business of doctrine. Doctrine. Would you turn in 1 Timothy chapter 4? There is so much in Timothy and Titus about doctrine, the word that churches don't like to use and don't like to employ. Doctrine. All this business about doctrine, sound doctrine, good doctrine. Verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, Till I come, Timothy, give attention to reading, that's good, to exhortation, and to what? In other words, study to know what you believe. You have heard what the preacher said, Find out if you can believe that and understand that. If the preacher said what is right, don't believe it because the preacher said it. But let God show that same thing to you so that you believe it, whether anybody else believes it or not. Though none go with me, still I will follow because I know in whom and I know in what I have believed. Then in verse 16, what an amazing verse of scripture concerning doctrine and the ministry. Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine and continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and Shelbyville Christian Assembly. Well, I'm going to make it personal this morning because I want it to be. What is it then that's going to bring us to the end of our life being saved? I know it's more than this. I'm just saying what he said here. He said, until I come, he said, you give attention, take heed unto yourself and unto your teaching. What do you teach? Well, let me see how he said it. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them what? Help me now, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Teaching them to observe all things, whatever I have said to you. You know what he said? Then our mission, then, is not to find out how we want to believe something, but to find out what he said and pray that God would make it clear to us by Ephesians 1, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that he would show us that. So that it's clear to us. See, we can't be faithful to anything that's not clear. We search, we heard, we search, we found, we see, we understand. We're steadfast. We're not going to fall away. We're not going to give up and throw in the towel. Jesus has shown us something that has meaning to us more than what is costing us to live this. And so we stay put. We follow him. We're drawn into him. We find our solace in him while we're being hammered and rejected and and put out in, in this world. But doctrine, this is what the word doctrine means. Doctrine is an agreement among us in understanding and acceptance. Is it possible that we could all believe the same thing? Now, if we don't, then we don't have unity. We have disunity. We do not function. We dysfunction. We cannot have, like, here's some that say, well, I don't believe in head covering. You don't. Well, it's in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 11. It's pretty clear. It's a sign you put on your head to show, if you're a woman, that you honor and respect your husband this is the biblical order. And you do this, as the Bible said, because there are angels present. Now, when you say, well, I don't know about that and I don't believe that, well, then read it again. Study it. Because if you come to a place where I just don't see that, and somebody says, well, I see it. Well, I don't see it. Well, now, you both can't be right. And we're not going to set it aside as a troublemaking doctrine. We just say, this is what the Bible says. Now, there's some are going to honor that, and some are not. Some will do it, and some won't. How about water baptism? There are those who say, well, sprinkling's good enough. Others say, well, you have to dunk them. No, you dunk them three times. No, you dunk them forward three times. No, you dunk them back three times. No, you hold them by the waist and take them head first. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can we be divided over that? Is there such a thing as a doctrine of baptisms? Of course there is. Well, then, is it not something that we should come to a harmonious agreement about? And the only way we know that we all agree is if we all do it. That you all believe the same things. I think that's what he said down in 1 Corinthians 1.10. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you all speak the same things, that you be of the same mind, there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together. Can this be possible? But it cannot be possible on the basis of how we feel. The one thing that looms central in here as an object of our devotion is the Word of God. There's nothing else we relate to like we relate to that. Jesus said the Word was made flesh in John 1.14. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was made flesh. This Word is essentially what He is all about. Your devotion to Jesus that cannot be outside your devotion to what he said. You cannot have a historical Jesus in your imaginations and somehow preach about that and submit to that and kind of vague, you know. It doesn't work like that. It says this is the way walking in it, the unity of the faith. Jeremiah spoke in his book in chapter 32 and verse 39. He said, I will give them one heart and one way. God's people are not going to be divided about anything the Bible's clear about. It doesn't say, do you like blue or do you like red or do you like green or do you like fours or do you like chevy? Nothing like that. Because that's not a biblical subject. But what is biblical? is what we labor in. Paul wrote to elders. He said, tell those elders to labor in the word. Find out exactly what it says. Search the words. See what they mean. Make it clear. Look for other things here that substantiate that, and then teach that, and teach it as though this is the last message we're ever going to hear. When I get through, he's coming. We've got to hear his word. His word, when we teach it, we're teaching doctrine. The Bible is full of subject matter in there that we all need to deal with. Like I said, there, you know, people say that doctrine divides. The reason doctrine divides is because people are unwilling and stubborn to agree with what God said, and preachers are unwilling to make it clear that this is the way. There is no other way. There is no other way to do this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Period. Clear. Enough said. Case closed. Amen. It is. And the arguments loom great. So-called Christianity is a very divided mess. And every Sunday they're saying, bless the mess. What God blesses is what he has given to bless. When you're willing to pay a price, to surrender yourself to his will, to yield, what a big word, yield to God. Pay the price, whatever it costs you, whether you're a loner or a troublemaker, whatever they call you. But your heart is good and clean. God blesses you, and he keeps you. He causes his face to shine upon you and so forth. But doctrine is such an important thing. It is like he said here in verse 16, this is how he's going to bring us into his kingdom, in the doctrine. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4 again, verse 2 and 3. We've all heard this, but now think of it in light of doctrine. Remember up in verse 16 before... This chapter three sixteen. all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine. Verse 2, chapter 4. Preach the word. Be instant in season or out of season. Whether they're with you, for you, on your side, not on your side, like it or don't like it, preach the word. Don't cater to people who want to rule you. Exhort. Rebuke, reprove with all long suffering, and what? Teach it. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will, after their own lust, heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside unto fables." But you keep preaching the doctrine. You keep preaching the truth, and you'll endure the next verse. You endure affliction because you will. If you preach the word, you will. See, the time will come. Even we're told the time will come that men will not endure sound doctrine. You could just teach on church membership or something. We, I've had people come, a guy come in office one time, and I was taught on commitment, commitment to the local assembly, to support it, to be here, to part of it. You know all the things that would go with my part that I play here, not other places, but you know the part I play here. I taught that, and, and he he couldn't accept that, and he didn't come back. So I can't accept that because he was maybe he was a crusomatic. I don't know. Just cruising around. I've been in places where they do that. They're under no restraint. Nobody answers for them. Nobody can answer them and deal with them. Their doctrine is whatever they believe is right, and if you preach something different, they'll give you a tape. Cause confusion and disharmony and disunity, and God hates that. They don't know that, but he hates that. They obviously don't. I notice back in verse 13 again of Ephesians 4. In verse 13, he said, The second thing, till we all come to the unity of the faith, one, which is unity of doctrine, and secondly... Unity of the faith is being faithful to God as the source and the supplier of all of our needs. Two things, again. The unity of the faith is one, is believing the same things alike, believing the same things, the doctrine. And secondly, it's being faithful to God who is our source in all things. Now the question is this, is God our source? Is he the one we should turn to to have our needs met? I don't mean to get your oil changed or to brush your teeth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about is God the one that we should turn to when we need our needs met? Now, we know that not everybody does. We know there are people who draw back. Maybe they failed once. Maybe you tried the faith way and it didn't work. You failed, and now you feel like you're not worthy to keep going or, as in some cases happened, a man that I knew of once had a faith failure. He was a preacher. He changed his doctrine after that, said, well, you know, I think we've been too harsh with this. I don't think it's such a big deal after all. And instead of dealing with his problem that he had, he began to change his doctrine so that he wasn't so wrong after all. And the people became very confused. Well, I thought we believed in them. Now he says we can, you know. But is God our source? I doubt if there's a soul in this room that's ever been perfect in all your walk with the Lord and in the area of physical things and sickness and healing. I doubt if anybody in this room has always done it exactly right. If that's true, then we've all had some degree of failure. And having failed, we can either quit. And say we've been condemned by this message or we can turn around and look God back in the eye and say you know I think I missed it I think I failed I think I just quit and I want to be restored and David did that once he messed up pretty bad and he said restore unto me the Joy of thy salvation. He got back on the right track with the Lord. He didn't give up and quit. There's a lot of people in here that have failed the last couple times, two or three times since then. You didn't fail. You, you hung on. You, you held in there. and God's made you strong again. One thing we must preach here is that God meets needs. He does not fail. God doesn't say, I will heal some of you, but not heal all of you. He doesn't do that. There are conditions that we have to meet for healing. There are those times in which he heals the multitudes, and we don't know anything about what they believed. They came, and he healed them all. Then there's time, he said, be it unto you according to your faith. If your faith is not grounded in Jesus and his word, then you won't get it. We preach that he'll supply all your needs. He will get you out of debt. He will bless your marriage. He will bless your family. He'll bless your home. He'll bless your body. You'll be blessed when you go out and blessed when you come in, whatever you put your hand to, your basket and your store in the country, in the field, in the city. What more can you ask for? Now the question is, though, in Christianity, who believes it? What body of believers is glad about all of that? They don't act glad because they're not sure about that. Of course we want to be blessed, but we're not sure that he does. Well, who's preaching to you? What are you hearing? Are you hearing he could, but he might not? Well, no wonder there's no faith. Faith is a valuable thing. It's how we relate to God. You can't see him, can you? How do you know he is? I mean, if you can't trust him for some of the little things in your life, how do you know you can trust him for eternity? You say, that's too hard. No, it's not hard. It is a message that has been divinely given to the church to teach God's people to have faith in him. John 6. Look in verse 29. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. What is the will of God? This is the work of God. What is the work of God? That you believe. Hebrews 11:6 without faith what? You can't please him. You can memorize doctrine, folks. You can academically get all the doctrine down pat, categorize it, pigeonhole it, and have it on instant recall with your intelligent, educated mind and not have any faith. You can be a walking storehouse of biblical knowledge and not believe it. You've got more than anybody else, but you don't believe it. The least little saint in the room with the widow's mites faith is better off than he is. We must trust the Lord. He is our trust. He wants us to turn to him in times of turmoil or times of uncertainty, of times of anything that is adverse. He wants you to turn to him with the assurance in your heart. Like Paul, I am firmly persuaded. I mean, I am sure that God, who has made 8,000 promises in this book, will respond to me on his terms according to his word. I have simply been given the privilege of believing it. All of us walk in that way. All of us. If the world operated by us, the, the hospitals would all go bankrupt. The doctors would have to go get another job because we would have another source. I'm not against hospitals and doctors. If we didn't have hospitals and doctors, most Christians would die. I have something better than the world's way. It is Jesus and his word. And on the cross, he bore your pains, he carried your sorrows. By his stripes, we are healed. Now, that's what he said. Now, that's what we must believe. There are no options to that. There are no substitutes for it. It is not okay to say, well, I know it says that, but no, that's not right. 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 Well, I can't say it any clearer than that. We are required to believe what he said. And we will believe that with assurance and not because of some duty. When you have this union with Christ that compels you to want to please God. I want to please you. I want to do it your way. Of course, we stumble around. Of course, there's been times we've messed up and we wept over it, but we didn't quit. We stayed with it. I want to trust God to supply all of my needs. I want to be willing, if I have to, to drive glorified junk until I can buy one and pay for it. I've done that. I would rather do that and be right with God than to go out and borrow something to make y'all's pastor look good. I ain't here to look good. I ain't looking so bad either. (laughs) I don't mean it as a boast either, but I can say that my faith has worked only because of God's grace. And if there's a faith you're supposed to follow, you could do worse. It's just that we're not trying to get something. We're just trying to believe something. It is the good pleasure of God to give it to us. There is a way to walk that we are to walk. It's the way of faith. It's trusting in the Lord with all your heart, and it's leaning not to your own understanding. Listen, the unity of the faith means we're together in this matter we have made decisions in our homes and in our individual lives, we're going to trust the Lord. Amen? We not only want to hear the doctrine that we can believe because faith uh, comes, uh, help me Levi, faith comes by by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Somebody's got to teach it. And if somebody is teaching it who is not sent, let me promise you something. If somebody's teaching it who isn't sent, it still doesn't produce faith. This is something that is unique with God. I don't care who the man is, how gifted and how deep the man is, only as it is given by God will it ever produce faith. Faith is not something you can just get. Faith is something you've given. Oh, faith comes by hearing hearing by the Word. If all you've done is hear, all you've got is knowledge about it, but it becomes faith when you trust it. God inspires you to do that. We have to be together on that matter also. A common word for knowledge is G-N-O-S-I-S. I guess it's pronounced gnosis. There was teaching in the old days about the Gnostics and these were people who praised knowledge and philosophies of men, things that men could concoct and know and and great deep things that were discussed and and philosophical arguments about all of that. They were Gnostics. There's a Bible word for not Gnostic but Gnosis G-N-O-S-I-S and it means to know. It literally just means to know, to acquire knowledge, to learn. Sometimes it's a greater knowledge, and sometimes it's just the process, the act of learning to know things. Now, you put a prefix on G-N-O-S-I-S, the little prefix epi, epignosis, and the word epi means upon knowing. That is the result of knowing. Upon knowing, you have a knowledge that has a great bearing on the one who knows concerning what is known so that it's not just some academic school. Remember when you were in college in those education courses, and that teacher that wore the same suit all week, droned on the same old thing for 30 years running about the educational processes, and back in the medieval ages when the, and, and you sat there going, uh. Now, I memorized answers. I had a good memory even then. That's how I got through college. I could memorize the answers. Go to class. Don't talk to me. I've had my coffee, but I don't want to talk. I want to keep my memories in here. So you go to class, and you get the test, and you give the right answers to most of them. Now, here I am a bunch of years later. I don't even know the professor's name. I don't even know the name of the course. I just remember that same old way of talking. And me being a teenager, uh, really interested in learning. <laughs> there is an educated knowledge that you could have. It doesn't affect your life. It may puff you up until you think you are so smart you can look down on other people because you know more than they do. But that's not the intent of biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge is a revelation that God will give you. You can learn what something says, but God shows you what it means. This is a revelation, and when he shows you what it means, it becomes a knowledge which perfectly unites the subject with the object. Go to Ephesians 1. This kind of knowledge comes by a revelation by the Spirit. Uh, Verse 17, that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you what? the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. There is no other way you can understand spiritual matters. You can memorize this chapter. You can memorize this book. You can memorize the life of its author, Paul. Well, really the Holy Spirit, you can't do that. But you can read a lot of historical accounts about this and give a lot of interesting information archaeologically about this time and this place in Ephesus and all that stuff. Going, You can do all of that. But it will never produce faith. It will never change your way of thinking or your life. It will never draw you to God. It simply makes you just know more. But when the knowledge that God gives affects you to where you go, Oh, man. I see it. I see it. It's the effect of verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Because he goes on to say, the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, and you can now see. Or the word know, there's also the word see, that you can know or see what he has given to you, what belongs to you. Do you think that kind of knowledge would change your life? If we're here this morning and let's say Caleb here is listening intently, let's say he's really into this, really into it, and because his heart is in earnest about learning, and not just learning what the Bible says, I like to memorize scripture too, but I want to know what it means. I want to know what it means to me and what God meant for me to know by hearing it. I want to know it that way. And so... While I'm talking, the Spirit of God sees his heart. Doesn't the Bible still say the eyes of the Lord run to and fro looking for purpose? Okay, so God sees his heart or your heart. That there is an earnest, there's a hunger here for for, for what this means and what it's about. And so God shows him something, and the eyes of his heart, the inner man, he he sees it. It's, It's an inside of me knowledge that God only can give, and he sees it. And he begins to go, whoa. He begins to see what God has given to him. The eyes of your heart, verse 18, the, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of this inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. Would that change your life if you could see that and believe that? Well, you're not the same person. You can read that and just say, yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard him he preach about it. He preached about it all the time. Or you can read that again, having had Revelation, I would go, praise God. Or you can read it and go, yeah. But be distant. It's not connecting. Your hard drive's out of order here. It's not working. It's knocking on the door. Ain't nobody home. Because you're not in it. But you come hungry. You come in earnest, you come seeking, you come desiring to hear and to know, and for God, improve upon me, make me more. I don't want to stay like this. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, that uh, I may uh, walk in thy truth. Unite my heart, it goes with it, to fear thy name. I want a relationship, and I want out of that relationship to come an overflow of truth into my heart that impacts me and changes my life. I'm not the same person that I used to be. I don't want to be the same person I used to be. I don't want Ecclesiastes 8, you know, I saw the wicked buried who went into the house of God and came out of the house of God. They stayed wicked. Something's supposed to happen in this room. Something's supposed to happen. You're supposed to bring something in here that's going to make it happen. You come seeking. Remember in the book of Acts, while Paul was preaching, he perceived there a man who had faith to be healed. And he stopped his preaching and he said to the man, that man wanted something and God stopped whatever was going on to give that man something. That man wasn't looking at his watch. That man wasn't going to wonder how long he had to wait down at the cracker barrel to get us something to eat today. I'm here to get something that's eternal. A natural man can't get it. This is all spiritual stuff. This is what the Holy Ghost does. He brings us the same light, the same revelation of the same God, the same Jesus, the same redemption to everybody that wants it. He's the same thing, no different. And when you get it, and when your eyes are open, you begin to see what God is saying, and that comes into your heart as he sends it into your heart. Whoa. You do change. People do wonder where you've been. You've been with Jesus. He knocked on the door and you said, I want you in here. He comes in there and looks at all that trash and says, you're going to get rid of a whole bunch of this stuff. He said, I'll get rid of all of it. Little by little. I don't want to do it because everybody else did, but I will as you show it to me. I'll get rid of it all. I want to honor you. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want, like Paul said, I, I want to know him. I want to have this communion with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge, in one translation says, it's a fuller knowledge of God. Not just a knowledge of God you can learn and memorize, but a fuller knowledge of God. This knowledge is special. Turn to Matthew 11, please, just for a moment. This knowledge is special. This knowledge is so special. In Matthew 11 and verse 27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son. Notice that. And no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Who is the revealer? Jesus Jesus is not only the revelation of God, but Jesus is the revealer of God. And without that operating in my life, our lives, this church, we can know nothing as we should, nothing. Jesus said, I thank thee, Father, thou hast hidden these things from the wise and reprudent and has revealed them unto babes. Peter, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has showed you who I am. And I think every disciple experienced the same thing because there was a certain meaning of the word glory that was given to them that united them so much that on the day of Pentecost, they were all in one accord. It should be that way with us, but it's not because we've given ourselves the excuse-making, well, I'm not ready for that. Well, I don't know. I said he believes it that way. Well, I don't know if I have to. We have inner dissension with God, and we just don't want to do it his way. But he's going to deal with it. Or the wheat and the tares are going to grow together. You don't want to be a tare. Listen at this verse, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Who gives this revelation? It is God. It is Jesus. Same thing. That's the whole design of what the Spirit is doing, to take the things of Jesus and what? Show them to you. Amen? to reveal those things to us. What's the design of these things he revealed to us? This is what makes us one. What he reveals to you doesn't have two interpretations. This is how we become one, doctrine. And for the people who say doctrine divides, it simply means that they're willing to tolerate division. You can believe it any way you want to, just as long as you love the Lord. That's not biblical. Because if you love the Lord, you don't believe it any way you want to. You believe it the way he says it, All right. All right. Yeah. period. Amen. That's the way you do it. This kind of knowledge is what saves us. Go with me on a quick journey. John 17, just a brief journey. Follow me. John 17 and verse 3. John 17 and verse 3. And this is life eternal. Or we could say, and this is eternal life. Now, if we didn't say anything more but said, what do you all believe eternal life is? Well, you could give a lot of right answers, more than just one, but you would be saying the same thing in that one in you know, those various answers. But this is what it comes down to. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. There's a oneness there. This is eternal life that they may know thee. In this sense, know is a relationship. Listen to me. This is eternal life that you might draw nigh unto God, surrender to what he says, and take what he says, and live like he said it. That is eternal life. That's how you say it. That's how it works. It's not how you're born again, but didn't it say work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Didn't it say receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls? This is how it works. You believe what he said. Or in John chapter 8 in verse 55, listen to this about knowledge. John chapter 8 in verse 55. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But, now notice this last sentence, but I know him and what? To know is to do, isn't it? To know him is to do what he said, to obey. Obey my voice. I'll be your God. And you shall be my people. If any man love me, he will keep my commandments. And he'll walk in all the ways and so forth. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 34 You don't have to turn to that, but he says to know is to avoid sin and do what's righteous. It's to avoid sin. Well, let me read it. It's a good verse to convict us and and to show us what he wants and the effect that what he gives us to know has on us. 15, verse 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. What does that mean? Now, listen. Listen. Let's turn it around and say it like this. Inasmuch as some have not the knowledge of God, they sin and do not aspire to a righteous life. What is sin? It's transgression. Let me read it again. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. That's pretty strong. I speak this to your shame. Awake to righteousness and sin not. In Psalms chapter 9 and verse 10, it says to know is to trust. If you know God, you trust Him. To know is to trust. And again, in John 17 3, to know is to be saved. John eight fifty-five, to know is to do. Psalm nine ten, to know is to trust. Look at all the things that happen with knowledge. God is teaching us things, and the effect that the teaching has if we are believers is that our response to him verifies that we will be doers, we will be in right standing, we won't sin, and we'll trust him. That's what he said. But that's not all he said. This one is kind of tough, too, but you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 as we come to a close. Second Thessalonians chapter one and verse eight. In flaming fire, this is judgment here, and it will come to this because it must. God is righteous. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that what? God's judgment is leveled here on two different kinds of people, two classes of people here. Those that know not, those that obey not. How important, then, on the basis of one verse of Scripture, how important is it to know God? It's eternal, isn't it? He says, in flaming fire, when he comes, after all the opportunities that we've had our whole life to hear and to learn and to do and to make application of his word and drag and our he said, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God. They didn't want to know God, or they sat and heard about him, but they never knew him. Jesus himself said about that. He said, I never knew you. We had no relationship. Remember that, Matthew 7? I never knew you. Oh, he knows who you are. He he knows everything. But as far as in his salvation and the dispensing of it, it comes down to whether or not you really relate to God or not, whether or not you have union with Christ. He said, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and, at the end of that verse, and they that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm standing here this morning reading it and thinking, I'm sure in my very narrow thinking about all of this, I think the older I get, the narrower I get. And I'm thinking about obedience as the Bible defines it: is being faithful, being doers of his word and not just his own. And there's so many that don't that could, but don't. And when the question is asked on the other side, why didn't you? They will have to say, I didn't want to, I didn't want to. I didn't want to give up this. I didn't want to stop that. I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to change. I just didn't want to, and I figured you were just loving enough that it's no big deal with you. And they'll find that God says, the way that I gave you to live is the way that I will bless, and you chose not to. Therefore, it's fair. It's fair. This is a solemn thought. It really is. It is to me. It's a very solemn thought that so many people, it seems, are going to be affected by this. But this is knowledge. This is what it does. And in closing, add this to all of this about knowledge in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4. What a wonderful part of Scripture here to show us Something about knowledge. Our need is for this. Verse 2, grace and peace. How many of you would like to have the favor of God and the absolute mental peace that comes with it? Well, this is how it comes. Here's a way to get it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you by what means? Through the knowledge of God. Again, listen. It goes back to what I said to Caleb a while ago. When you see it like God shows it, it affects your whole life. And you quit striving about things, you can just trust God for things. And there's peace in that. There's peace. A person who doesn't know what you're talking about struggles with that. But a person who has had the revelation and is determined to do it that way, you're trusting God with the outcome of all your tomorrows because he's already in all your tomorrows. He's already there. And you're walking through this life just holding on to him. Where he leads me, I will follow, and what he feeds me, I will swallow. And I won't get the third one. But in verse... Two again, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God. That is the knowledge of God, about God, and of Jesus as He gives it. Verse three, according as His divine power hath given, not will, not might, not could, but has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How? Through Through the knowledge. Through what he shows us and the effect it has on us to change us, this is how we get it. Through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. There's that word glory again. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might escape the pollutions that are in this world. How do we escape all of that? Knowledge. Show me something, Lord. Didn't the psalmist say this? Open my eyes to behold wondrous things from thy law. We only got through two points. I'm so glad we get to do this again. If the Lord tarries, we get to come back and do it some more. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning grateful for your kindness and your goodness for your love for us and to us for the showers of blessing that have been laid upon us lord the potential that you've given us to be the kind of people we read in the bible that we can be is just amazing you have said this morning that you have already given unto us everything we need to live a godly a powerful and an overcoming life. You've already given it to us, and we find that in the Word as you show it to us. Give us that, Lord. Grant us to be knowers and doers. I pray for those that are sitting before me now. They're your people, not mine. They're the sheep of your pasture. All of us are. I pray for that stirring of your Holy Spirit this morning in everybody here, that nobody here will leave empty. Everybody will have something, whether it's disturbing or edifying, but we'll all have something. We'll take something out of here that'll last the whole week. And maybe during this week, Lord, we can find a quiet place and get alone and deal with us While there's time, before the day is dark and no man can work, while your light is still shining, Lord, that we can do something about our empty lives, I ask you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.